Are we designing a circular economy or just designing circular products and materials? I started this podcast to help people discover why circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. Some people think going circular means swapping a few materials or making things a bit more recyclable. But that's not enough and can even cause more problems than it solves. We're up against massive challenges with a fragile planet, finite and depleted resources and people everywhere under pressure. It's time to reimagine our future, to do better with less. And that's where this podcast comes in. Disruptors are already putting this at the heart of their business strategies, using circular and regenerative approaches to deliver deeper value for all their stakeholders, including customers, workers, investors and our living planet. I'm Catherine Wheatman, author of A Circular Economy Handbook, and I'll be chatting with inspiring people who are challenging business as usual and rethinking how we design, make and use everything. You'll find the show notes and links at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to podcast updates and the Circular Insights newsletter. Hey, welcome to episode 110 and thanks for listening. Today we're catching up with Dr. Katie Beverly. Katie is a senior research officer at PDR International Centre for Design and Research at Cardiff Metropolitan University. She works with academic partners and the public and private sector to embed eco-design, circular economy and sustainable thinking into products and services. I'm always impressed by the way Katie thinks about the bigger picture and the potential outcomes, good and bad, of changing how we do things. Back in episode 5, Katie helped us understand more about eco-design, and she's also written an excellent piece about eco-design in the second edition of A Circular Economy Handbook. Katie describes herself as a critical friend of the circular economy, and that feels like a great starting point to explore what's going well and what isn't. First, though, let's think about the context. What's wrong with the current system from the point of view of business and society? Where might organisations be missing out on value and why? Are people downplaying the risks of carrying on with business as usual? And why do we need a different approach? Growing revenue generally means selling more stuff by making it cheaper, by using sophisticated marketing to persuade more people they need this stuff, by using both emotional and planned physical obsolescence to convince customers to buy the latest version of something they've already got. And of course, if the aim is to sell more new products, it's not in companies' interest to make things durable, repairable or upgradable. Businesses want to make products desirable, attaching status to owning them. They don't want people to lend them, share them or swap them. So instead, they persuade us that we need our own, using the fear of missing out, promoting exclusivity and feeding our egos. 
Or businesses design things to be used just once. Often encouraging people to see this is more convenient, as we see with single-use packaging, disposable razor blades, disposable barbecues, and so on. The overall effect of this system, our waste economy, is that every year we make, use and discard billions of products that people don't really need. And that production, use and disposal has a massive footprint. Energy, carbon, finite and dwindling raw materials, deforestation and more. The footprint gets bigger at every stage of the process, with pollution of air, water and soils, destruction of habitats and the death of nature. Plus, research is now showing that the knock-on effects of toxins and pollution have devastating consequences for people, all of us. So this waste economy is destroying value, destabilising the foundations of our society and our livable planet. And what's worse, it's not delivering value for customers either. Customers get products that don't last as long as they expect, and they get persuaded to spend money on stuff they don't need. People are locked into a system where they buy things that then get thrown away. The profits go to the company, and society and nature pay the consequences. But what about businesses? The waste economy is a race to the bottom for them as well. Disappointing customers with products that don't last, can't be repaired, and depreciate rapidly doesn't build customer loyalty. So firms spend more on marketing, using up more and more resources to pump ever more products through the system is a race to the bottom. We know deep down that all resources are finite, and we're starting to see the effects of demand exceeding supply, with cost volatility and supply chain disruptions. The landscape has changed. We're passing catastrophic tipping points and most businesses aren't seeing that. What we need instead is a system that supports affordability and makes it easy to access things that help us live better. We need a system that conserves, shares and regenerates our products and materials. A system that draws down and locks up carbon. A system that cares for and regenerates the natural systems we depend on to provide us with pure air, clean water, healthy soils and all the other life support services we take for granted. A system, to quote Paul Hawken, that heals the future instead of stealing it. Later in the conversation, you'll hear me mention a book by Paul Skinner, Purpose Upgrade, Change the World to Save Your Business. But I got the book title wrong, calling it Purpose Disruptors, not Purpose Upgrade. I've included a link to the real book in the show notes. Okay, enough from me. Let's join the conversation with Katie Beverly describing the trends she's seeing from business clients, policymakers, and from her academic and design networks. Katie, welcome back to the Circular Economy podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me again. And it's really good to see you. We met up a few months ago, and I'll come back to, to that in a second. But you were one of my earliest podcast guests, for which I'm very grateful, because those first seven to ten episodes are often when people, guests refuse to come on because they're not sure if the podcast's going to 
kind of um, you know make it out there and be a, be a permanent thing. So thank you for doing that. And then we've stayed in touch, and you've written a section for my circular economy handbook, for which I'm also grateful for. And when we talked about you doing that, you described yourself as a critical friend of the circular economy, <laughs> which I also think is brilliant. And then more recently, we met up online to talk about an article for a journal, the Journal of Design, Business and Society, where they were doing a special edition on design for sustainability. And uh, you wanted to pin me down with a few questions. <laughs> turning, turning the lens. So you became my expert on the circular economy for that particular conversation. So, Catherine, you're a bit too modest. You're always my go-to as the expert in this field. Oh, thank you very much. And and I guess I'm also feeling that I'm getting more vocal about the need to raise the bar on the circular economy. And I'm seeing an awful lot of, of solutions, particularly solutions from big businesses, that just cover material circularity, really, either substituting materials, problematic materials, including recycled materials and making things more recyclable. And we both agree that that's, that's not the way things should be going. So I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you is from your role as a designer and helping clients improve sustainability and use circular economy and eco-design principles, what kind of trends do you think you're seeing that you've noticed over the last couple of years? Well, I think going back to the the question that you just asked or the way you just framed the question, particularly around um, are we seeing just these almost kind of like piecemeal parts of the circular economy coming through? Yes, unfortunately, the lion's share of the work still is like that. It still is about substituting materials. It still is about using recycled materials, trying to get more sustainable materials as a kind of big push towards looking at some biomaterials potentially. Um, and to some extent, you know, that's that's be, that's because business still wants to do business as usual. And, I, and you know that business as usual means having control of your materials, having the opportunity to do those things. And I think to some extent that's the designer's role in this is to promote that you can do more, that if you just reconsider how your business creates value, you can do more. But we we don't see it coming from business particularly. So what we tend to do is kind of pitch the idea of, I suppose, what we might call tighter loops in the circular economy. Um, so we pitch the idea of, do you want to look at extending product lifetime? Do you want to look at alternative business models because I think one of the challenges is that as a product designer I think I suppose I'm well I'm not a product designer but as somebody who works in product design what I've started to realize is or what I realized at the time but what I'm really starting to push for now is the fact that you don't design the product and then design all the value creation mechanism around it you do it the other way around you need to know what the business model is going to be you need to know whether you need a service offer and it's the business model and the service offer that push what the product design should be like so often i feel like our clients come from the wrong side they come with this idea that they want to make their existing product that sits in their linear business model better and become more circular without reflecting on the fact that it's a circular economy, not a circular product. So mm. so I still think we're seeing 
clients initially come in with that viewpoint. I don't think the 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 value creation opportunities have penetrated into the market effectively enough yet. And when you talk to clients and give ideas or similar examples about the potential for these value creation opportunities, what kind of reaction do you get? We, <laughs> it's an interesting one. Some businesses, um, and I think you can kind of separate businesses out into those that really have sustainability as a value and really have the circular economy as a value, and they will explore these areas and they're willing to explore until they kind of hit what they think is a fundamental boundary and a fundamental barrier in kind of getting across and that means that some businesses will go ahead and kind of do the whole thing then there's the other businesses that just want to get a bit better at what they do and the barriers in those businesses tend to be more significant they tend to be yeah that's not what we really want we want products that will fit into what we're currently doing Mm. Yeah, I can, and I can see examples of that happening, you know, all all around. But just coming back to what you said about sustainability and circularity as a value, and then there still mm. being a barrier beyond which companies are reluctant to go. What kind of things form those barriers? Well, it's often so. I think what people tend to do is think that products can be more circular Um, and actually a product is only circular if the whole ecosystem around it allows it to be circular Um, and that means you know so I talk to I don't talk to clients about circular economy as a sustainability activity I talk to them about it as a value creation process but the mindset still tends to be it's about sustainability and sustainability is in the language of what I can't do not what I can do so there is still this thing that companies will often come in viewing the idea of becoming more sustainable as being a cost to the business so Mm. we try and swing it around and say actually this is a great way of creating value that means if you have a service alongside it then it's really hard to imitate you so you can't kind of like you're not just creating a product that is then really really easy to copy and somebody will come along and copy you're introducing resilience into your business you know you're some of the to some extent some of the issues around covid supported that a little bit but we seem to have lost quite a lot of the bounce that came when companies really felt the strain on their long supply chains Mm. um so we'll we'll kind of say you're more resilient, you've got better relationships with your clients because you're kind of creating these business models as a client where you're closer to your client um, and to your customer to your end user and to your customer. But it still is the case that people come in and think that circular economy is often about recycling and recycled. Um, no matter so so we still we have to engineer those conversations so that we can show the higher level value rather than rather than accepting a brief as it comes around so we we kind of when we're talking about things i often say we need to turn the brief on its head um and really kind of say instead of trying to solve an ender pipe problem let's look at how you actually create the value through doing this um and some clients are more willing to engage in that than others yeah and i guess it's a challenge for lots of businesses isn't it to suddenly have to look at their entire value network look at you know not just the supply chain but look at the customer base 
look at the context, the business landscape around them and the changes that investors and even insurers are starting to push for yeah. and then to try and find a way through all of that. And do you think businesses are starting to see risks in resource availability and costs? Not as much as I'd like them to. <laughs> um, so I think on the one hand, I think that the conversations around um, the climate emergency and net zero have helped us to see that you know businesses have to become a bit more sustainable. But to some extent, they've made us a bit focused on scope one emissions. You know, mm. everybody wants to be able to say they're going to be net zero by I don't know twenty fifty. If you're, they're not very ambitious by next year. If they want to be really ambitious, and that to some extent has actually shifted the focus away from the materiality side of things and the um they they sit in scope three emissions really the materiality side of things and it shifted to some extent the the desire away from that so one of the things that i think we're seeing a lot of is people want to in, to improve their processes to reduce the energy use of their processes but actually not worrying too much because it's still you know the the fact that net zero is territorial is an issue in that sense because you can almost export your scope three emissions somewhere mm. else and it's someone else's scope one emissions to worry about yeah um and that is i think that is a bit of a challenge and i think it doesn't matter how often i talk to people about resource security and the issues of resource security and you know we've been we've been through covid the war in Ukraine highlighted the risks associated with materials and materiality. We're seeing um, net zero. We're seeing low carbon um, industries relying on critical raw materials, and they're all there. And the conversations are all happening, but they're all happening at a distance. It feels a little bit like the climate emergency has suddenly landed itself on people's doorsteps in a very obvious way and it's almost like we haven't had the same shock for resources mm. and it's a it's a bit of a concern for me that we might have to have the same shock with resources because the worry is if we do have that shock with the resources are we at a point where we can come back from it so i don't really i think resource cost isn't always associated with the circular economy because it's all settled within the linear economy. So the things that are driving the costs up are the linearity. Mm. Um, yeah. And then you've got this problem of you're trying to have a conversation about circular economy, which changes the flow of value. And someone else is saying, yes, but my resource costs are immediate now. So I can't wait until I've done that. So there's a lot of kind of horizons that in terms of resources that aren't quite lining up for people to see the clear message that is out there that we are getting to a point where our resource use is unsustainable and you know well we are at a point we've mm. been at a point for a mm. long time where our resource use is unsustainable and the connections between the climate emergency and our resource use also aren't highlighted enough. Everybody seems to think if we reduce our energy, we'll be in a great position. But that's not actually the case. You know, we're looking at around 45, 50 percent minimum kind of. That's the minimum number, really, that we can put on 
how our resources affect our emission, our scope one emissions, and around 90 to 95% of biodiversity and around 90% of water strengths. And, you know, the whole thing is a complex system. We, if we don't focus on all of these things together, then the problem is the complex system starts to break down. Yeah, exactly. So I suppose I, one of my big concerns is that we are not really seeing the risk. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think it is just so complex and interconnected that really it's it's a whole new level, isn't it? It's like suddenly going from learning school physics to quantum physics in a couple of years and trying to suddenly get your head around, you know, what that means. And in fact, it's worse than that because it's not just one dimension of new learning, is it? It's suddenly having to have this geo scale awareness of the mm. issues and to understand for the key resources that you rely on not just what your sector's planning to do but what a whole load of sectors that you know nothing about are planning to do and a you know a good example in in the UK I guess it affects lots of other companies uh, countries as well is we've got a debate going on at the moment about single use vapes mm. which mm. contain lithium and I'm looking at that and thinking, lithium's in re <laughs> when we haven't got enough lithium to make the renewable technologies that everybody wants to have to reduce our energy carbon load, and yet we're using them for something like a vape, a disposable vape. You know, how, how did that happen, and why is nobody, you know, when people are shouting about it, they're shouting about it from the point of view of the fire risk. <laughs> not, yeah, not, 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 not the kind of the loss of the valuable material so we seem we seem to have just, just got things out you know we, we haven't got we haven't got a proper contextual view of all the interrelated issues yeah and i think that speaks a little bit to what we were talking about earlier as well about you know so this idea that businesses are they'll create a circular economy that works for them in a very small circle but like any system the sum of the parts well the whole is greater than the sum of the parts so you know if you imagine that you're creating this kind of lovely little circular system and it means your suppliers probably have to go off and find a new client to fill for the work that you're not giving them and they're not thinking about the circular economy it means that anybody who uses any materials that come out the back end of your process they suddenly have to find somewhere else. So the chances are that you adding up lots of little pots of circularity probably actually has a strain. And in the, there's some really interesting research into this at the moment. Um, so the academic world's kind of looking at this to some extent. And um, the sum of the parts is actually at a point where it's increasing resource use if you're not very careful about how you become circular. Mm. So I think we're seeing this, you know, the, these national regional level flows, this circular economy on what I would kind of call the macro level versus circular economy at the micro level, which is kind of what's happening in individual businesses. It's almost more important to set the goals at the macro level so that the micro level know how to how they fit in. And that might mean an individual business not changing anything they do, but because they're part of a circular system, they're still contributing massively to the circular economy. But that, I mean, from that fries my brain 
and I think about it on a day-to-day basis. So imagining kind of like a small business coming in and trying to do something like that, and trying to navigate their place in that circular economy. I can't imagine what they must feel like if it's frying everybody else's brains. <laughs> mm. And I guess that means we need policymakers to focus on the really simple things and yeah. giving long-term signals so that people can really set their direction and, and know what's going to happen. And I guess simple things like product durability. I bang on about this all the time, but it's it's as if there's been a very gradual erosion around our expectations of how long something should last. Even simple things like a fridge or a washing machine, you know, they get they get more complicated, but without any additional benefits really. You know, my, my parents' washing machine just has dials for the, the program, the spin speed, the water temperature. And that's just as simple to, to set <laughs> as the electronic one that we ended up having and probably will last a lot longer. And, you know, people only use two or three cycles most of the time anyway. So we've made things more complex and less easy to repair. So I think some kind of incentives from government that start to set people's expectations people in business and the people buying the products that actually these things should now be lasting longer instead of it just getting shorter and shorter and shorter yeah and we are starting to see policy movement in that direction so for example you know the right to repair to some extent started that process we're seeing i mean there's some really interesting things happening in pro in policy in france um, only over the last couple of days, the idea of kind of incentivizing people for repair of clothing has come out as a French part of French legislation. And those sorts of things, you know, I think there is an appetite and there is a recognition at the policy level that actually we can't rely on business to make all these decisions. Um, you know, the, I think one of the challenges for, for government has always been historically, and you remember... Uh, very eminent professor once saying this to me when I was interviewing him about net zero. Um, he once said to me um, that businesses want to stay away from the dirty things of making money. Um, yeah, oh, sorry, um, governments want to stay away from the dirty things of making money. You know, that's in the remit of the business. But I think when it comes to circular business, you can't do that. You know, you're, you're effectively asking anybody who wants to do circular business to internalise externalities that linear business doesn't have. Mm. Um, and I think that policy has to help people to do that. And I think governments do have to start getting their hands dirty with how businesses make money. Um, which is an uncomfortable space for them, but I think it does have to happen if we are going to move to a circular economy. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us, and we see this this kind of debate recurring on LinkedIn all the time, that you know we shouldn't put all the onus on us as citizens. It should be governments and businesses. Mm-hmm. But uh, unless we're giving clear and very vocal signals that we all want this, then governments are going to think it's a vote loser and, and keep you know kicking the can down the road (laughs) yeah and that's a that's kind of a frustrating thing because at the moment um linear business kind of has the playing cards for that you know so they can they are the the linear business model world is in this kind of situation where the, the economy is set up for them everything is set up for them in terms of policy and so on and they hold all the cards that allow us to change things so 
The challenge is how do we persuade them? And I think the arguments really have to be about how resilient are you in the long mm. term? Yeah. How, what happens if you can't continue to create value in the way you're creating value? What happens if your customers do suddenly want to do this? Those messages about what it means for you as a business and your long-term business sustainability. What we have to try to be able to do is navigate those kind of macro level questions with almost some micro level challenges. I don't think we're doing that very well at the moment. I think our our macro level policy, uh, sorry, our policies are focused on the micro level and they don't have that strategic necessarily macro layer above. They tend to be quite um, woolly on the top surface, which is that we want to have one planet living, but we don't really understand what our material flows are. And we, you know, so we need to get better at understanding the relationship between what happens at the micro business level and what happens at the macro level of the circular economy. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's still at, at many levels, not even yet properly understood, is it, the circular economy? I see yeah. quite, a, quite a bit of, of discussion that still focuses all around recycling and circular materials and, and not talking about business models and, and so on. Agreed, but agreed. Are you sensing in business, are you sensing that businesses are picking up signals from customers whether that's business to business customers or you know joe joe blogs john doe i suppose if we're talking to our american audience that people are wanting different things yes definitely um so i think we're seeing and i think probably we're seeing this more in i guess a business to business kind of playing field really it's always been easier for business to business circular economy than it has to kind of look at a disparate group of customers that sit at the far end it's really it's really much easier in business to business and um actually also this is a place where policy has made a shift in when that bis- when it's business to public sector so where we are seeing quite a lot of really interesting circular economy innovation happening is in that relationship between business and public sector um and We've been doing a a really nice piece of work, which has been about um, building capacity for the public sector to do circular innovation that's been running over the last three years, a a programme called Circular Economy Innovation Communities, where we've been bringing together people providing public services in Wales um, to look at how they can do that in a more circular way. And that's really been driven by the fact that in policy in Wales, the public sector is, is positioned as a leader and that means a leader in terms of promoting you know how do they move to more circular business models how do they specify and tender for more circular business models um and you know and less kind of less radical circular economy solutions so so how do they tender for those things we've just been talking about you know products that are easily repairable but don't necessarily have the business model that sit underneath it and so on but what we're seeing is that there is an appetite amongst those businesses to actually move towards it and actually big corporates as well because if big corporates can use the circular economy to create social value for example um they're interested then 
So they're interested in kind of receiving a product from somebody that will allow them to be able to answer some of their broader corporate social responsibility goals. So I'm thinking about there being really interesting projects um, where organisations, I think I spoke about this last time actually, where Public Health Wales were working with um, Orange Box and Ripe Office and they had a third part, a third sector organisation. So since that time, um, they, the procurement framework in Wales has actually moved towards having remanufactured furniture as part of that. And there's a lot for provision for two social enterprises working together to supply the public sector. So the public sector is actually getting the value from it's it's not only getting the kind of recycle the repurposed materials and repurposed um, furniture, it's also getting the social value, which is in Wales is part of one of their deliverables is to deliver social value. And I think the big corporates are also in the same position. If they can kind of demonstrate going beyond the materials value and the kind of um, resource value that the circular economy delivers, they can demonstrate social value and economic value, then they're in a really great space. So we are seeing kind of, I think with that, with that public sector and kind of larger corporate sector process, we are seeing clients asking a lot more from businesses around the circular economy. Yeah, I think that the social value aspect is a really interesting one. And recently, Patagonia and I can't remember the name of the organisation, they've set up a clothing repair centre in Amsterdam, really big scale. And it's going to be open to any brand that wants to get their clothes repaired for customers. And this is helping to employ people that the local phrase is people who are at a distance from the labour market. And so when I was talking to somebody to try and unpack that a bit, you know, it was people who might be migrants. They might have been unemployed for a long time. They might have some kind of um, disability or, or other issue, mm-hmm. making it difficult for them to get into the mainstream labour labor market. So this was going to be, you know, this is going to be quite a big scale operation and is a really good way to give people you know, very meaningful work, learn new skills and help them understand what it's like to be employed and maybe, you know, if they're struggling with the language, improve the language and and so on. Yeah, and I think that is, you know, so I think that's part of the key. It's maybe not in the language of kind of the businesses, the language that businesses would normally want to talk about, value creation. But I think part of the key to talking about the circular economy is about recognising that there are multiple forms of value that it can create. Mm. So recently we've been kind of mapping what circular economy value can deliver against the wellbeing of future generations in Wales, which is the way that we enshrine the sustainability goals, so the SDGs effectively. Um, Wales has got its own policy, which is about enshrining the sustainable development goals and we quite when we're talking with the public sector with the local with the kind of community-led businesses we're talking about to them about how do you map all of the forms of value the circular economy can deliver um and it's kind of i suppose we're a little bit away from the business aspect of this now but if we've got those conversations happening and they're driving things that clients are asking for in tenders and so on then that's going to drive a change um, and I do think the whole aspect of 
multiple forms of value that the circular economy is delivering because I think we still struggle to make the environmental case for the circular economy and to some extent that has become more difficult when everybody started to focus on net zero but when we look at it as a kind of multiple a, a value multiplier in all these different ways then we get away from that and we get towards it. What we need is people to have an appetite to do this and not to just see it as something that should be done. And to be honest, I don't mind how we get there. <laughs> I don't mind which of the arguments it is that we're making. I, I, I just mind that we get there. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like the idea of multiple forms of value and that's something I've been exploring for the next book. But I think the one of the issues for business is that a lot of those forms of value are very intangible. So they're hard to put a number on when you're going into a business case. You can't say we're going to save 10 percent of this material. You can't say we're going to, you know, reduce our production costs by X amount. It's all about reducing, say, obsolescence reducing customer churn, reducing your inventory. And I think one of the other issues is that a lot of these sort of under the radar costs, the overhead costs, if you like, have just increased very gradually mm. over the years. A bit like we were talking about earlier with the reducing lifetime expectancy, where we've all been educated. You know, we've not gone from washing machines that lasted 40 years to washing machines that lasted five years overnight. It's been a gradual erosion <laughs> and hoping that people don't, don't remember <laughs> how long, how old the, you know, the one, the, the one that you just replaced for your granny was. So this kind of gradual move means businesses have lost sight mm -hmm. of what those costs were in relation to the overall. And I was talking to somebody about marketing the other day and shared that I used to work for Kellogg's and uh, what percentage of revenue we spent on marketing, which at the time, when we talked to colleagues in the food industry, that was just a massive number. Nobody else had anywhere near that mm. percentage to spend on marketing. And yet now that figure would be really, really low. So you're kind of yeah. thinking, so there's, you know, there's, there's so much having to be spent on either finding new customers to replace the ones who've got fed up with with what's happening or keep customers coming back that that again is another drag on profits and i think there are so many sort of in, hidden elements that are gradually getting more and more expensive but nobody's looking far enough back to kind of say whoa how did this happen this has really sneaked up on us yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think, you know, we, we just accept that they're a normal part of business, you know, that you have to do these things. But actually, if you do track back a little bit, you know, so for example, we have, you know, the costs of doing really great things for social value, you know, so if you're a big supermarket, you'll do something really nice, you'll kind of run a little competition, you'll give a bit a pot of money to these businesses and everything else. And it kind of there's, there's your social value creation. But um, actually, if you thought about that being baked into what your business offer is, then suddenly the costs associated with that, yeah, you probably carry on doing it, if I'm honest. <laughs> but the, co 
costs associated with that, effectively, you could kind of inset a lot of those forms of value that are currently costing you money into the way you do normal business. And the challenge is, how do we actually have that conversation about, let's look at all of these things that you're doing that you could change if you had an effective circular business model, because they seem so disparate. They seem so unconnected to having a conversation about changing value in your business. And I think that's the challenge is it is a huge system. If you're sitting outside of the system, you can see the changes that need to happen. But if you're in the middle of it, you really can't. Mm. Yeah, people are under so much pressure, aren't they, to just keep delivering the next quarter of results and... And do more, do it quicker. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, you just, you're under so much pressure and there isn't really the time to take a step back and reflect, which is what we really need business to do. Mm. Business to take a step back and reflect and say, what am I actually delivering here? Yeah. And I guess really that's no different to what happened when digital came in mm. because it mm. affected every part of your business lots of those effects were things that you couldn't even begin to imagine when things first started. And if you weren't really on board with this and really trying to grasp this as an opportunity and understand what this was going to mean to your business, what were the disruptors doing and could you adopt some of that or was there a risk you were going to get disrupted out of the way? And we saw a lot of businesses, didn't we, fail through that period mm-hmm. kodak yeah. kodak being one and yet their nearest competitor fuji realized that the writing was on the wall with film and diversified into all sorts of other specialist chemicals and ended up over the same 10-year period that kodak went filed for bankruptcy um fuji increased its profit by 50 percent and then there's the famous story of um blockbuster laughing netflix out of the out of the room so this kind of hubris around you know we can keep going with business as usual and not looking at the bigger landscape not looking at the context and realizing that we've now reached lots of tipping points Mm, you know around around resource consumption around the carrying capacity of the earth around the need for legislation and resilience if you're going to keep doing this kind of business or as a country if you're going to be resilient to provide a good standard of living for your inhabitants your citizens what do you need to do differently and there are just you know big big kind of rocks and chasms out there that people just just seem to you know it's easier isn't it to look away and just focus on um, the short term but do you think do you think any are you seeing businesses, any of them, starting to question this dogma of endless growth? Not particularly coming to us, if I'm honest. I think we have had conversations um, internally about the kind of the, the opportunity. I mean, at the end of the day, we are a product design agency, which means that we make bits of things that probably end up in landfill at some point, you know, <laughs> And that's one of the, the crosses we have to bear to some extent. Um, but we've had conversations internally about what it means, you know, if if we see businesses that are interested in kind of 
prosperity without growth, that are interested in different forms of value creation, that are interested in degrowth as a principle, but but it isn't happening. We're, so we're kind of having the conversations, but it's not, our clients aren't coming with that in mind. Mm, so people can't quite step over the edge of taking that into action just yet. But, no, uh, but, are, but are, you seeing, that... are you seeing people starting to absorb it and consider it? I don't think we are. I think we're still on the whole seeing people who think that it's about growing. And they're seeing the circular economy in that old kind of classical fashion of it's about decoupling your resource needs from your economic growth and I really think we have to change the narrative on that because I actually don't think we can I don't think Mm. we can decouple our resource needs from our economic growth I think we can decouple our resource needs from our prosperity but they're not Mm. the same thing and that's a huge challenge and we really aren't seeing an appetite for that amongst business I think if we want that change we have to look to policy but we also have to look to how we talk to people who come through the door to clients about do you really want to achieve you know what why is it why does it have to be that if we put a circular economy business model in you have to grow your resource costs are going to go down in terms of you know you're going to do all these great things why do you then have to start churning out more and more and more value or why can't you allow your internal value to say okay so we're spending less here so that means we can actually call that that we're creating value but that's not the way it's seen we Mm. have to have those conversations i think and i don't think i don't think we're doing a great job of that at the moment and i don't think clients are really tempted to listen Mm. I guess you just have to keep trying to sow the seeds and maybe it's one of those things where, you know, a a seed is sown and then people's radar is on and they start to notice more about the shocks coming and notice more about the conversations around degrowth and so on and begin to, to kind of consider it as a possibility. Yeah, and I think that's that's what we have to do. And I think also we just have to, there's always an issue of navigating how to have these conversations because it's got to stay relatively upbeat, you know, that, mm. or in my, to my view, it's got to stay relatively upbeat because, you know, a client can't come in and you abrade them for what terrible things they're doing and you expect to get them to come and work with you on circular economy that's just that's not going to happen so we've got to try and spin a narrative which means that it is this positive thing it is seen as being positive that opportunities that allow the business to you know so for example when we're talking about growth you know if, if your business looks great to more customers you'll grow organically probably and you will decouple to some extent your resource use from your economic growth but on the on the macro level i don't think it's possible to do really i think i'm mm. i think i'm resigned to the fact that we've got to we've got to have a serious conversation about economic growth and resource yeah, and and focusing, as you say, more yeah. on prosperity and human well-being, and you know how yeah. can we? I think Kate Rayworth's word is to thrive. You know how can we thrive yeah. within the limits yeah. of? And another good phrase she uses: the only living planet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the universe. 
So, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is it. It's it's and I think that is businesses, individual businesses are not going to change that. I think that is that does need to be led by policy. It needs to be a top down we see we see it in bottom up initiatives from community led organizations. We see a lot of them creating great social value and um, local value and local environmental value through circular economy initiatives. But if we expect business who effectively their role in society is to create wealth and to contribute to GDP, then if we want them to do something different, we've got to get different about how we ask them to contribute to society. Mm. And that's got to be a policy thing. Yeah, as you say, levelling the playing field and getting people to really see things in terms of the multiple forms of value yeah, that, absolutely. that can be accessed by doing things in different ways. So, Katie, I'm conscious we're coming towards the end of the time. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to raise that you're seeing as a as a trend, whether that's a, um, a helpful trend or a or a, a barrier that you're trying to overcome? One thing that I do think is becoming interesting, I mentioned it before about this idea of um, embedding sustainability and circularity as a purpose. We are seeing more businesses come into us to ask us to help them to create those visions. And I think that's really exciting because it kind of acknowledges that it can't just be this, let's look on the individual product level. Um, so I think, and we're, so, so we're, we're kind of talking more with businesses about what does it really mean for them to go circular? What do their, what does the, the product journey look like now? Where are the circularity issues? How can we have, how can we then look at how you embed this in your in everything that you do rather than this thing of a client comes with a single sustainability project in a large company and to me that's exciting because that allows the space to have the conversations we've been having today you can rarely do that on a single product let's look at making this better basis it needs to be at that level of let's talk about your strategy let's talk about your vision for the future let's talk about your concerns over materials risk let's talk about what materials risks might really be for you because if we you do that on an individual level it's not on an individual product level it's not really going to shift the dial if you do that at company level then it will start to and that excites me about the work at the moment that we are seeing a bit more of that and we're seeing a bit more of people really saying okay let's not just tinker around the edges with the circular economy let's start to think about it again it tends to be those businesses that are purpose-led that want this as a kind of central tenet of the activity that they do but that's exciting you know even if it's just those businesses that's exciting yeah i agree and it reminds me of a book I've just been hearing a podcast about. I'm going to forget the, forget the name. Let me just like <laughs> glance at my... Oh, yeah. I've got his previous book. So uh, Paul Skinner, um, who one of the organisations he works for now is called Marketing Kind, which is all about trying to move marketing in a more sustainable direction. And he's written a book called purpose disruptors i think it is which which is about this 
concept that you can just keep disrupting the purpose that's at the heart of your business and taking it to the next level and the next level and sustainability is one of the elements that he thinks is really important but he said you know no no purpose is ever perfect so you can always disrupt it and make it a bit better and that's what i like i like you know so we you've got to think of the circular economy as a transition you know we're not all going to wake up tomorrow morning and suddenly be circular um it's got to be a transition and it's got to be a transition that people are in different positions and they have a different level of agency to be able to take that step towards sustainability now if you bake it into your your kind of strategic level you can then reflect on have the priorities changed you know so we've seen a lot of priority shifts in terms of sustainability in recent years so have the priorities changed am i still aligned to the things that really matter do i and i think if you can kind of get that sense that and i think we were talking patagonia earlier patagonia do that really well um that the fact that they never stop and look and say we've achieved our purpose Mm. that was our purpose to go actually is our purpose still aligned to what we need to do is it still the most important thing and if we can get more businesses to think that way i think we will see that those kind of softer ends of product design and so on are baked into something that means they're effective in the circular economy and that we actually do shift the dial on resource use um and that, to me, that's the important thing. Let's get it baked in at that level. Let's get people reflecting on what we do. And then let's worry about everything else. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're right. If if it's at the heart of your purpose, then that means all your stakeholders are buying into that. Those people yeah. who are investing in the business should only do so if they're buying into that purpose. Employees yeah. are going to want to work for a business that thinks like that and and really has that at its purpose not just kind of tinkering around with a few things and of course customers and suppliers and everybody else in the value network all knows what direction you're heading in and can you know can get enthusiastic about being part of that and i would say we've we've seen that on the ground um in in our product design agency um that we are seeing far more people who want to come in and work on sustainability projects now you know so so the fact that they they see there's an opportunity or the fact that they think they can kind of contribute through agency work to more sustainable projects we've got a generation of people who really want to work on this as a design problem and we should be engaging them in doing that whether that means engaging them in helping people to set the strategy or then operationalize it whichever but that thing of the workforce really wanting this, we're seeing it with the new generation of designers that are coming through. Brilliant. Well, that's a hopeful note to end on. So, <laughs> yeah, let's um, plan a catch up in a couple of years time and, and hopefully we'll be able to look back on some of these things where we're saying, well, there's a bit of conversation about it, but not much action yet. And suddenly, <laughs> suddenly we'll have crossed the chasm and businesses will be seriously on board. And Katie, is there anybody that you'd recommend as a guest for the for a future podcast episode? Uh, I think there's two people that I really like um, talking to about the circular economy. I think they, they always have something different to say to me about it. One of those is Rhys Charles from Swansea University. He's 
really interested in materials flows and is really interested in kind of new technologies and how we circularize those as well. Um, and the other person is Anne Stevenson, and she has a really interesting take on the psychology of language um, and how we talk about the circular economy. And I think both of them would be great podcast guests for you. Brilliant. I know Reese a tiny bit, having heard him speak and was super impressed, so that sounds good. And Anne Stevenson sounds fascinating, and I'd love to explore that. Katie, thank you ever so much for taking the time to share your reflections from some of your design projects and so on. It's been great to catch up with you and look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. It has been lovely to talk to you again, Catherine. So there you go. Another episode of the Circular Economy podcast. I want to thank our awesome guest, Katie Beverly of PDR International Centre for Design and Research. And as always, thank you for listening. You can find out more about Katie Beverly and her eco-design work at pdrdesign.com. Follow Katie on social media and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. The Circular Economy Podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, the company I started to help you succeed with Circular. You can find information on my talks, workshops and advice, plus circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info. And you can connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can do better with less. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and review on your podcast app. If you're just starting out with the circular economy, why not check out our Getting Started playlist on the podcast homepage. You can also buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out the interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening to the end. And if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.